Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm talking today with Ashante Golar, creator and host of The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because, as you know, I am a white male, which I believe inevitably affects how I see the world. And so it's a good thing, I think, to reach out to people of, you know, different races, genders, and other kind of fundamental characteristics in the hope of uh, kind of better understanding their perspectives and also realizing that my way of seeing and understanding the world isn't the only way and that, you know, I might even have some important blind spots in my worldview. So with that, uh, Ashanti Golar, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. Ab- really excited to chat with you today. Absolutely. So, you know, I thought before we got into it, you could start by just telling listeners a little bit about, you know, yourself, your background, and of course, uh, the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. Uh, absolutely. Well, I'm Ashanti Golar. I'm the founder of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. And I actually came to love politics at a very young age. I think most people think that people in politics come from the political family or the family that has the money to get them involved. But one day I was watching TV with my mom and she got up from the couch and I did what young kids do. And I changed the channel to find something I wanted to watch. And I discovered C-SPAN and I saw all of these people fighting and arguing and making these wonderful speeches about how to make the country better. And it really intrigued me. But even at that young age, I didn't see a lot of people that look like me. I didn't see a lot of black and brown people. I didn't see a lot of women. So even at that age, I wondered, okay, I love this, but is this really for me? Can I have a role in this political system? Fast forward, I'm in high school. I still love politics. And I had that great government teacher, Mrs. King, who knew anyone and everyone in politics. And she was really great at encouraging us to volunteer for extra hours, really reading up on the issues. And she invited two of the candidates who were running in a very high-profile race that year to come and speak to us. My issue at the time was the minimum wage. I worked a part-time job to have extra money. So did a lot of my friends. And of course, I thought we should make more money. So I asked the first candidate when he came in his position on raising the minimum wage, and he was absolutely all for it. I asked the next candidate his position on raising the minimum wage, but in particular, why he voted not to raise it. And he said, oh, no, I did vote to raise it. I let him know he didn't. He said I did. I let him know that I can check his votes in Congress, and he did not. And he kept arguing back and forth with me. And it just really upset me. I was like, why is he lying to me? Is it because I'm young, because I'm a girl, because I can't vote? And after class, my teacher called me over, and the candidate had called her, and he admitted that he had lied that he didn't vote to raise it, but he didn't like that I had called him out. Wow. So I was thinking, okay, I am young. I am a girl and I can't vote, but I know that I can volunteer. And I volunteered for his opponent with every free second that I had. (laughs) And his opponent won that race by 500 votes. Wow. And that showed me the power that we have just as regular everyday citizens to get involved in our democracy, to change our democracy, to advocate for those people who care about our issues. And I was able to do that being young, being a girl, being someone who couldn't vote. And after that, I was completely and totally hooked. I did lots of work with the young Democrats, college Democrats, volunteered for the state party and local candidates and doing all of that. I just ran into and encountered a lot of women who saw things in me that I didn't see in myself and really lifted me up and supported me to make my way through this crazy political system. And I'm very lucky to be in the position that I am. There are not a lot of Black, Brown, and Indigenous women still in 
high profile positions in politics. For me, I'm the only black woman who in my professional career runs a women's training organization. I'm the first black woman to have this position in our organization at an executive level. And with the Brown Girls Site to Politics, the catalyst for it was I would always get emails from young girls asking for advice. And I knew exactly where they were coming from because I was that young girl who did not know if I belonged in this system, how to navigate this system. So I wanted to create something for them so that they could feel seen and feel heard and to have myself and other women of color in politics give them the advice that we wish we had, but also the advice that we would give now as we're still trying to figure this out and navigate this because we don't have all of the answers. And it started with a blog and then a website that has resources for women who want to get involved in politics. And a few weeks ago, we launched the third season of the podcast to bring our stories to an audio format and we're just really excited about how people have taken to the platform. Yeah. And, and like I said, I think it's important to point out that while it's called the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, you, you do not have to be a brown girl to, to listen to it and get something, you know, pretty valuable from it in that in getting a perspective that's not, you know, your own. Uh, and so I think that is a, an important aspect. Yes, and that part just truly warms my heart when I have non-brown girls tell me how much they love the podcast and how it helps them personally and professionally with seeing how women of color have to walk through life. The series that really, really catapulted us into wanting to do the podcast was the blog about being the only brown girl in the room. And so many people responded to that blog series just saying, we want to hear more of these stories. We love how the contributors were just so authentic and telling what it's like when you are that only person of color in the room and what you're dealing with, what, what's going through your mind at the time, how you, how you have to deal with things after you leave the room. And I love getting those yeah. emails and those comments from non-brown girls who say, I really think this is just a really great podcast in general. I love the stories, but I love that I walk away with something too about how I can be a better supporter to people of color, women of color in my daily life. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's really important. And something I didn't really appreciate, I've, I've, I've mentioned to listeners on the Politics Guys before that my entire life up until uh, around 10 years ago, I had lived in neighborhoods and in places where everyone looked pretty much exactly like me. And I didn't really think much of it. But then uh, in 2008, I moved to a neighborhood where actually I was the minority and the one who looked different than most of my neighbors and that. And it really, it really opened my eyes in in a in a surprising way and made me realize that that the experience that I had as normal is not everyone's experience, and so that's why I'm just such a big supporter of trying to the extent you can to to especially if you're like a white male like me to put yourself as much as you can into the position of people who don't look like you because it really can be a, a like i said a, an eye opening experience. Uh, and I honestly just appreciate that you said that because so many people don't have that mentality. And one of the things that I have definitely learned is even though we have the DGG, though I advocate all the time for bringing communities together, your words as a white male do have a stronger impact when you're saying it to other white people than me because they're actually seeing someone who is really looking at a different perspective and right. you saying that carries so much more weight. So thank you. Absolutely. My, my pleasure. So let's talk about some, uh, I really wanted to ask you about some specific policy issues. And of course, you know, the, the big thing on everyone's mind now we're recording this at the, uh, at the end of, uh, April, gosh, I'm, I'm losing track of even the months at this point, but is, uh, know. You, know, you know, it is. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it, it, it's, you know, it's COVID-19. And there have been some reports, you know, saying that minorities have been disproportionately affected. And so the first thing that I, I wondered as, as a social scientist as well, is, is this maybe just a socioeconomic thing in that oftentimes there's, you know, there's a big uh, overlap between uh, minority status and, and uh, economically disadvantaged status. But I was wondering if, in your view, if it's just that or if maybe there's some sort of an independent racial component to this. Uh, what do you think about that? Absolutely, there is. COVID is definitely putting a spotlight on a lot of the disparities that we knew existed in this country, especially for black and brown people. That's economic, that's social, and particularly in healthcare. During the presidential campaign, during the primary, we heard a lot of the candidates shine light on black maternal health care in particular because Black women die during childbirth, post-childbirth, more than white women. And like studies have shown that we do not get equal treatment. And something that really led people to see, okay, it doesn't matter who you are, even if you're a Black person with a lot of money, is when Serena Williams was telling her story that after she gave birth to her daughter, she was still in the hospital. She kept telling them she wasn't feeling well, and they ignored her, and then she forced them to look into it, and she had a serious condition. We've even seen women, Black people in general, being turned away from hospitals when they're showing up with COVID systems. They're telling them, you know, just go home. If you call, if you turn blue, call us. Well, Black people, we don't turn blue. Yeah. We get more of a grayish color. So even now, with this crisis going on, we are seen as not deserving of the treatment. We are seen as less than. And this is really impacting Black and brown communities at a higher rate. It just came out yesterday that in Richmond, Virginia, all the people that have died from COVID are Black people. Wow. We're seeing that in Indigenous communities, their death rate is higher, and they're still waiting to get the government assistance that has been promised to help them fight this. So this is something that has happened in our communities for so long, and this is why you actually see Black and brown people taking this so seriously. Because if we get sick and have to go to the hospital, we don't know if we will get fair treatment. We don't know if we will get the ventilator we deserve, if we'll be deemed less deserving than someone else. These are real issues that happen. I can speak personally from times when I've had to be in the hospital and just not being taken seriously about my levels of pain or requesting something from the nurse and not getting it, I really do hope that when the dust settles from this, and it will, I'm very optimistic that we look seriously at our healthcare system, even where we have resources for hospitals and healthcare, particularly in rural cities and countries across the country, our rural areas across the country, because there's going to be so much to unpack. But for us, this is not something new. Again, this is just a big swath of America getting a peek inside what it's like being black and brown people in this country. And, you know, I should I should point out to listeners that there's more than just some people might say, well, you know, there's anecdotal evidence. But you know, this is backed up by a number of studies that I've seen that that to my view, pretty conclusively and clearly demonstrate that there is a systematic sort of racial bias in treatment, things just like you were talking about, taking seriously symptoms and that. And so it's it's more than just some people's stories. I mean, there's some there's some pretty solid social science research that backs this up. Mm-hmm. And even in this age of social media, if you just look at people who are telling their stories, 
there's a woman, her tweets are being amplified. She unfortunately passed away after giving birth to her child. And she said, I can't wait for this to be done to tell you all about my horrific experience that I've had with this hospital and these doctors. And we won't be able to hear her story. But, you know, these are really real things. It's also why a lot of people in black and brown communities will only prefer to see doctors who are black and brown because we think that we will be treated better and that they won't minimize our pain and our suffering. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And of course the, the, on the economic side of, uh, of this, certainly uh, the economic dislocation has uh, brought even greater or more to light the uh, economic inequality issues. And again, that's something where, uh, where minorities tend to be disproportionately affected. Yeah, absolutely. When we're talking about our essential workers, be it our great nurses, our people in the grocery stores, again, predominantly black and brown people who are showing up, getting things done, helping support us. But so many people have also lost their jobs during this time, and it's weighing very heavy in black and brown communities about how do we come back from this? A lot of people are really fortunate to have some great local elected officials who are providing the community support and assistance that they need during this time because we're really not getting what we need from the highest office in the land. But when we, again, look at things post-COVID, we will see that it is, again, the black and brown people who suffer the most during this time. Yeah. I, you know, you mentioned we're not getting uh, what you want from the highest office in the land. And certainly, I mean, uh, President Trump is, uh, despite what he might might say or tweet about, uh, certainly he doesn't have uh, a whole lot of support in, in the minority uh, community or any minority community, because there's certainly more than one. And, you know, there have been there's been a lot of talk about President Trump uh, being racist. And I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. I have my own thoughts on it. But I guess kind of two parts, really. First off, do you think that the president is motivated in part by racial bias? And 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 does it matter? And what I mean by that is some people would say that, you know, whether a president is, is racist or has animosity in his heart doesn't matter so much as actually what his policies are and what they do and, and that sort of thing. Like, I guess, for instance, you could say that maybe President Johnson, as an example, was potentially personally at least somewhat racist, but certainly his policies were very helpful in many cases to minorities, that sort of thing. So I wanted to get your take on that. Mm-hmm. Really great question. And for me, this is a man who, even before he ran for president, discriminated against black and brown people at his housing properties. This is a man who called for the death of the Central Park Five, even when they were declared innocent. We've seen it recently when Ava DuVernay did her series on Netflix highlighting the issue. He still said that they were guilty. He launched his campaign by calling Mexicans racist. So that part is very clear that this is a man who does not have the highest points of view about black and brown people in this community. I don't, you really don't see anyone saying Donald Trump, even before he was president, has really lifted up black and brown communities at all. You also do not see this with his policies. The biggest thing that he has been wanting is his border wall with Mexico. Even while we're dealing with COVID, they're destroying wildlife lands to build this wall. He is fighting against DACA. He has banned immigration in the country, into America. When you even look at how he likes to tell all the positives that used to be with an employment rate being low in black and brown communities, that was not him. That was, again, him reaping the benefits of the Obama administration. 
there is not anything in his policies that say that he is really doing things for black and brown communities. When he gave his tax cuts, that did not benefit black and brown communities. Any of his economic packages, really no strong impact in black and brown communities. If he did have really great policies that impacted black and brown communities, we wouldn't see black and brown communities suffering so much during COVID. So this is not a man who really cares about black and brown communities. You saw that before he was president. I think you see it now with his policies. I think he can have diamond and silk and Omarosa and all the rest of them cape as much as they want for him. But at the end of the day, we know this is not someone who is really for us. And I feel this even is shown during these COVID press conferences that he holds. I personally don't watch them. I'll just read the recaps or watch the clips afterwards that when you heard them talk about black and brown communities and exposure to COVID, it was basically saying, well, you have to be healthier. You need to not be eating great food or bad food. And again, there was no recognition of the fact that there are disparities in healthcare between black and brown communities and white communities. So no, I don't think that this is a president whose policies are really having a great impact on our communities. Well, you know, I also wanted to ask you about Congress, because when you uh, kind of let us know a little bit about sort of your background, you mentioned that you turned on, you know, C-SPAN and not too many people looked like you. And, you know, when I talk about the demographics of Congress to, to my students, I say, well, it's pretty much, you know, rich old white guys, basically, in the Senate, you know, richer and older and whiter. And certainly we've made progress in that. And Congress is more diverse over time. But, you know, there are, one question is, well, is it enough? And kind of a related question is, well, to what extent does having minority representation, strong minority representation in Congress matter? So what do you think about that? It absolutely matters. And is the representation great? Like, no, but is it better? Absolutely. We have the highest number of women currently serving in Congress, which is fabulous, over 100. But again, we can do better. And we have the most women of color serving in Congress. So does that make a difference? I think you see it. You see it with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. She was extremely vocal about the fact that, okay, We need to be making sure that we're taking into account and looking into racial disparities during this time because no one was. Now we are. You have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, again, not rich at all. When she won her race, a lot of people were hating on her because they were saying, well, she can't even afford to move to D.C. yet. And she's a normal person. She's not rich and wealthy, so she doesn't have all the money to just up and get an apartment in D.C. because for those of us who live in this area, we know it's really expensive. But that actually endeared a lot of people to her because, oh, my gosh, she is just like me. I know when I moved out to D.C., I was fortunate enough that I had friends who had a spare bedroom, and that is where I stayed. But she is, again, calling out the fact that rent is due in a few days. What are a lot of people going to do? How are we continuing to boost them up? So you see these women who are advocating for black and brown communities because that is their experience. That is what they walk through the world as. But these are the communities that they come from. So they are truly bringing their lived experience to Congress. And it is so needed during this time to be bringing up the issues about the fact that, okay, black and brown small business owners did not get any of the money from the PPP loans. Why is that? It's because we're giving money to the Lakers and Ruth Chris. We need people making those issues heard, bringing them to the forefront. So when we talk about why it's different, 
just seeing how having their voices during COVID is showing how it is different. And, you know, when we talk about greater diversity, uh, there's clearly a gap between the parties. I think of those pictures sometimes you see of, you know, the Republican and Democratic gatherings and the Republican gatherings. It's basically just a sea of white faces and Democrats, you know, are a lot more diverse pretty much by any measure. And why do you think that is? Why is there such a gap between Democrats and Republicans in terms of uh, minority and even female support to a lesser but still significant degree? Yes. I talked about us having the largest number of women in Congress, but that increase was on the Democrat side. Republican women actually lost seats. And it has to do with the investment. In my professional career, I'm the president of Emerge. We recruit and train Democratic women to run for office. This is what we do 365 days a year is we find the Deb Hollins. She's one of our Emerge alums. She's the first Indigenous woman woman to serve in Congress. We're getting those women to run. Mayor London Breed of San Francisco, one of the first cities to actually start to institute social distancing and stay at home, emerge woman, the first Black woman to serve as mayor of the city, getting those women to run. It has to be about the fact that just like we recruit For all of these seats, you have to be intentional about your recruitment for women and people of color. And that is where our party is better. Obviously, parties can't do everything, but that's why groups like Emerge, Emily's List, the Collective PAC exist to help our party with this recruitment. So there's always going to be those people who will raise their hand and will say, I'll do it, I'll run. But the majority of those times, those are straight white men. We don't see lots of women, women of color, raising their hand to do it. Right now, we're having the debate around Stacey Abrams, and people are actually saying, well, she's too ambitious. She's putting her name out there. Shouldn't she be playing it coy? And she is very clear about the fact that I'm a black woman from Mississippi. I learned at an early age that if you're not vocal, if you don't raise your hand, No one's going to consider you. No one's going to take you into account. And that is just very true for women, for people of color, when it comes to running for office. There will be those who will raise their hand, but there still will be those who raise their hand, but no one's paying attention to them. So what we do at Emerge is we're paying attention to those people. So if you want to see the bigger investment in seeing more people of color, more women of color, running for office for your political party, you have to put in the work. And that's what it comes down to. And on the Democratic side, are we perfect at it? No, but we are putting in the work to make our party more diverse when it comes to our elected officials. That's a great point. I think a lot of people don't really appreciate the importance of recruitment efforts and what a vital role that 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 plays, because I think it's an undercovered sort of story. Another thing along the same line, some people might say, is that's certainly true, and it would be good if the GOP could do more, but it also seems like they have a smaller base to work from. And and so I'm wondering, because part of it seems to me that part of the reason why women and minorities are more drawn toward the Democratic Party is they feel that their policy proposals speak more to their, their needs and their lives. And so I'm wondering if you think there's anything that Republicans do can do, conservatives can do to appeal more to uh, minorities without sort of abandoning their core beliefs and their core values. Because, of course, you know, the simple thing is, well, they would just be Democrats and, hey, I'd be OK with that, but I could see where they would. And so do you think there are things that conservatives can do to make uh, more of an appeal to minority communities? Yeah. Absolutely. So the first thing I want to say is that, you know, black, brown people, we are not a monolith. So we don't all think the same. We don't act the same. So we know that there are black and brown people who are a part of the Republican Party because their beliefs align more with the Republican Party for the majority of black and brown people. I think given our history in this country, we 
tend to veer more to the Democratic side. I tell people all the time when I think about the things that I stand for, my beliefs, my values, I align more with the Democratic Party. So that's why I'm a member of the Democratic Party. But what I tell everyone, regardless of your political persuasion, is show up. Show up in these communities and talk about the issues. Don't expect people to just come to you because you're, you're the elected official, you have the big title, you're the leader in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party. You have to go to people. You have to meet them where they are. So there are lots of Republican elected officials who will still show up to the meetings in the black and brown communities to talk about what they're doing. Is everyone in that room going to agree with them? Probably not, but it's the fact that they put in the effort to at least talk about what they're doing. So the first step for the Republican Party is to show up. And just don't show up when it's time to run for re-election or get out the vote. Show up in between. When the communities are having the issues, be there at their meeting to talk about it. Hear about why it's important to them. Learn from it. Evolve from it. That is my biggest piece of advice to the Republican Party if they want to make inroads is start showing up and listening to people and being there. That's the first step that you have to take. And that that's great advice, no matter who you're talking about with elected officials, I think. So absolutely. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, earlier, you mentioned Stacey Abrams a little bit. And of course, she's been in the news as a potential vice presidential nominee for Joe Biden, who said he'll name a woman as his vice presidential pick. And, uh, you know, also to a certain extent, uh, uh, Kamala Harris has been talked about in that. I was wondering what you thought about Joe Biden's announcement that he would be choosing, uh, choosing a woman. And, uh, you know, uh, any thoughts maybe on uh, Harris or Abrams uh, as a potential vice president? When Vice President Biden said that, obviously, I was very happy. This presidential primary on the Democratic side, we saw the most women running ever, which is great. It was exciting, but we didn't end up with a woman as our nominee, you know, which is disappointing. But I think Vice President Biden, he's going to be a great nominee. And I like the fact that he does want to balance out the ticket with a woman. The fact is women are 50% of the population, but when we talk about the Democratic Party, women are the base of the Democratic Party and black women are the base of the base of the Democratic Party. So it does not surprise me at all that two of his potential picks are black women. I think a lot of people forget that it was actually the Biden campaign who started floating very early on that he was considering Stacey Abrams as a pick. Like, that wasn't her. They were the ones saying she would be great. Kamala Harris, same thing. Only Black woman in the Senate. She's been very outspoken on all the issues, really holding the Trump administration's feet to the fire. She would be great as well. I just love the fact that there's so many women that he can pick from. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with why we need these diverse voices in Congress, why we need more women, because we have made those strides. There's so many women from him to pick from. And I think that's great that the beat stakes is really about, okay, there's all these fabulous women. It's going to be so hard to choose. So I know whoever he picks is going to be fabulous. And I just can't wait to see the campaign that they're going to run together. Yeah, me, me, I, I agree. You know, uh, with with Harris, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, I I was surprised. And I think a lot of people were surprised that her how her presidential campaign never really caught on. And uh, the same you could say for uh, who was a person who was my sort of favorite for a long time. And that's and that's Cory Booker. And, and I tell people it's not just mm-hmm. because we're both vegans. I, I like them for a lot of other reasons. But. <laughs> But why do you think, I mean, obviously I say, well, you know, these are, these are two minority candidates who seem to on paper to have very strong qualifications. And yet 
they never, I mean, it never caught fire. Of course, a lot, you could say that for a lot of campaigns, but do you think it has anything to do with, with their being minorities, especially given the fact that, you know, some people would say, well, you know, the Democrats already did the black president thing. And so we need to move on from that. I, I don't know. What do you mm-hmm. think? Yes, definitely have some thoughts on this and have to say, I'm also a big Senator Booker fan. I just adore that man. He is so great. But I think one of the things that we have to think about is even before we got into the depth of this presidential primary season, the media really are already started framing the discussion. We heard two things. We heard, well, Hillary couldn't beat him, which she did. She got more votes than him. So if this was the popular vote, we would have President Clinton. But because we have Electoral College, we have the man in the White House. So Hillary did beat him. So they kept saying, well, a woman can't win. A woman can't beat him. So why would the Democrats nominate a woman? And then on the other hand, you had people saying, well, part of his election was a backlash to President Obama. People were just so upset that a black man was elected president. So they're not going to elect another person of color. So even before these women candidates, these black and brown presidential candidates started declaring the media already shaped this narrative that they can now win. That is what we were hearing for months on end. And that definitely seeped into a lot of people's minds. And I know people are saying, but Ashanti, why do you say that? And I'm saying this because Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren was the only woman standing. And before Super Tuesday, what you saw was people switching, people who were supporting her to Vice President Biden, because they're like, well, I just want to win, and I think a man can win. I think Biden, uh, Trump needs to go up against a man. I even saw women saying this. So does that have a huge factor into why their campaigns didn't do well? Yeah, because this narrative was already fed to us very early on that a woman couldn't beat him, a person of color couldn't beat him. And that has played a big role, I think, in why we have Vice President Biden. But Vice President Biden is a well-known commodity in the political world. He's former vice president. This is his third time running. He knows how to run a campaign. So he also did have that advantage. But I do think that narrative also did hurt a lot of the campaigns of the women and the people of color. Well, let's say, and this is something you, you and I, I'm sure will agree on, let's, uh, or hope for, uh, that Joe Biden wins in November. That's, that's sort of a, I certainly let's hope that. It. Let's just claim it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but let's say that does happen. What sort of action, what sort of policy do you think needs to happen first in a Biden administration, you know, specifically focusing on the, uh, the needs of the needs of black and brown communities? Mm, that is such a good question. And I think the biggest thing that he needs to do is we just talked about all of these great vice presidential or great presidential candidates is I think a lot of it ha- will do with who he chooses as his cabinet members. I think that is going to be the biggest tell about what policies we will see in black and brown communities. So it's really his first action has to be to us, okay, these are the people that are going to serve along with me. And that will let us know what we will see. I think with looking at the different agencies with the Department of Labor, we definitely need to see more being done around federal jobs in black and brown communities. I used to work at the Department of Labor under the Obama administration, and we did a lot around recidivism and banning the BOP. I think that's going to be really huge when we're looking at HHS. We definitely have to be looking at how are we boosting up the Affordable Care Act? We know this administration is working hard to tear it down. So how do we take the flaws that we know that it has and make it better, tying in, especially what we've seen around COVID, looking at SBA, there's going to be so many black and brown businesses that haven't recovered post 
COVID. What are we doing to help those people get back on their feet and make sure that there is that support if something like this happens again? So I really think it's going to be going agency by agency and looking at what has been really negatively impacting black and brown communities over the past few years and starting to hone in on lifting up those communities via the agency. And that's an excellent point. I think there's an old saying, personnel is policy. And I think a lot of people don't really appreciate the extent to which the people you put in these positions in these agencies can make an, an enormous difference in in how they're run and real life outcomes for people. And and certainly in the Trump administration, we've seen the results of, for instance, putting people who are either hostile to the mission of these agencies or just not filling these positions at all and, and the effects that this can have. Oh, huge effect is really breaking my heart to see everything that we did at the Department of Labor rolled back, especially when it comes to the investigations around workplace safety and people not getting their pay, because those were not investigated at all before we came in. And the people who were really getting, what's the word? (laughs) I was going to say a bad word. I can't say that. <laughs> so the people who were really getting screwed over. There you go. Yeah, that works. You know, by, you know with wage theft, those were women. Those were black and brown people. And their cases were not being investigated. So that was one of the first things that we did was making sure that those people were getting their money that they were owed. We were doing the OSHA investigations around safety And honestly, as Americans, like everyone listening, like we need to care about those safety regulations because now we're talking about all the food processing centers during COVID. If they roll back regulations, that means that we're getting unsafe food. If people aren't being taken care of, if they're not given the time off to get healthy, that eventually will reach us. So as much as we care about what happens with Congress, We need to care about what happens at these agencies, because that also has such a huge impact on our lives. Absolutely. Let's let's look at a less sunny scenario, at least in in our you you and I would agree is a less sunny scenario that President Trump wins reelection. If that happens and, you know, there's there's a reasonable probability that that could happen. How do you expect how do you expect that to affect women and women and minorities? four more years of of Donald Trump. So what I do tell people is even though, you know, I want to claim the Biden presidency is we have to be very realistic that this man can win reelection. And the answer is making sure that when we are going out to vote in November, you're paying attention to the rest of the offices on the ballot because your state and local leaders matter the most at this time. They are the ones who are combating all of the craziness, the awfulness that we are getting from the administration. Right now during COVID, we're seeing governors, we're seeing mayors, we're seeing attorney generals. They are the ones who are getting things done. So the best way to combat Trump is to make sure that we're electing great leaders at the state and local level particularly if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, they are the ones who are going to matter to us the most. But it's also the reality that the decisions that are made at the state and local level already have the biggest impact on our daily lives. So we need to be paying attention to them. So I'm seeing so many people who are like, especially in these Southern states, are so glad that they have a Democratic governor because they're seeing what's happening in other Southern states with Republican governors, but we also have Republican governors who are ignoring Trump and they're not toying the line and they're doing what's best for their people. So the best way for us to ensure that we still get the policies that we need is to make sure that we're electing great people at the state and local level. Yeah. And and again, that's one of the things where we tend to focus so much on the national level. But uh, I, I completely agree that uh, so much of what's important and directly affects our life does happen at those levels. So that's that's an excellent point. 
what do you what would you say to uh, well people like me, white males, and even those of us who I would say again like me who feel like they try to make uh, an effort to understand and and be supportive of, of women and minorities. What in your experience do we most kind of not get, I guess you could say, or misunderstand about women and minorities in politics, or I guess, you know, even more generally, what, what do you see, I guess I'm saying, as the biggest blind spots that you've, that you've noticed from us? The biggest thing is you do have to realize it is different for us walking in this world. I still hear it all the time where people are like, everyone's the same. I don't see color. Gender doesn't matter. Don't say those things because what you're doing is you are discounting my lived experience as a person in this country, as a woman in this country, as a person of color in this country. So that is one of the worst things that you can do is to say the sexism, the racism, the misogyny does not exist because it absolutely does. And we're not expecting you to be perfect on our issues in any way whatsoever. There absolutely is a learning curve. You know, I'll just use the experience of people that I have worked with, you know, colleagues, seeing who they were on the first day that we met to seeing who they are now. They wanted to learn. They wanted to be better. But they will tell you that It is actually being around me and seeing what I have to deal with, like really seeing it, Mm -hmm. not just saying, oh, that's what we have to deal with at work, but just seeing that, okay, this person talks to me differently than they do Ashanti, (laughs) which you'll hear a lot. Okay, why am I getting this response when I'm saying this, but Ashanti said the exact same thing and someone's jumping down her throat? oh my gosh, that's bias, that's racism. Pay attention to those differences because they do exist. And then, you know, I'll only speak for Ashanti, but if you're willing to learn and want to be better, I am happy to do that emotional labor, but also realize it is emotional labor for me to talk about the discrimination that I face in the, in the daily world the discrimination that I see other women, people of color facing. But if you want to learn, I will be happy to talk to you about that. But you also have to listen to what I'm saying and realize that this is what I'm dealing with. Uh, A book that I definitely want to recommend that everyone read is White Fragility, a really fabulous book. Um, It was not meant for people like me. It was meant for white people. But it is a book that I read every couple of months just because it also reminds me that I am not crazy (laughs) (laughs) when I'm dealing with these things. And I referred it to so many people and they're like, it made me uncomfortable. But that's part of the journey. If you want to do better, you have to get uncomfortable with being uncomfortable and realize you may have said things, you may have done things that really weren't freaking cool. But recognizing that is half the battle and wanting to be better is the next. And uh, we'll make sure to put a note, put a link to that, the white fragility in, in the show notes. So if you're interested in checking it out, you'll be able to, you'll be able to do that. Uh, you know, aside from, you mentioned a book and obviously I recommend uh, Brown Girl's Guide to, to folks, but aside from that, you know, are there any sources or people, you know, on social media, otherwise that you can recommend who, who you think are doing good? good job, especially when it comes to sort of highlighting maybe not just women and minorities, but really just generally people who are often uh, marginalized or disenfranchised in our political system? Oh, there there are so many people that you can follow, but I think I definitely want to have everyone start with White Fragility, and when you research that, other books will pop up, but The best thing that you can do is when you start to see people talking about these issues, start to look at it from a different lens. Start to look at it from 
you know, if you're reading the news and they are talking about COVID and the number of people who are entering hospitals, you know, the people who aren't leaving those hospitals, look at it from the different frame of a woman, a woman's point of view, a person of color's point of view, just start to change your viewpoint. I think that's the biggest thing that you can do if you really want to start really being supportive of women and people of color in the world. And I, I think that's I think that's great advice and a great place to to end. Uh, Ashanti Golar, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. No, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, you email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help, as well as leaving ratings and reviews, and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.